morning, everybody. Before we look at today's scripture, um, I want to mention again that what we're doing with the the professional, highly professional photographer out in the hallway. Um, it's been 2016 and uh, since I've had my own personal picture uh, photo file of the congregation updated. Um, we no longer do a photographic or uh, photograph mailer or directory um, for two reasons. As soon as we get done with them, they're obsolete. But the second reason, the a number of the wise, I think, law enforcement people in our congregation have advised, unfortunately, that if you have directories like a lot of churches have had in the past with pictures, phone numbers, and so forth, strange people, which it seems like everybody but us, today, elite most of you today, are just weird and depraved. So they'll use something like that to try to track people down or whatever. So if you're approached to have your photograph taken out in the hallway, I'm the only one that has it. It's a file for me, and I can. It helps me um, remember names um, and put faces and names together. So this is not something that you know we we sell to Amazon so that they can contact you. This is just for me. So I'll take highly personally if you don't let your picture be taken, since it's for me. You ever thought what Jesus was doing after Easter? I've not really, to be honest with you, given that much thought through the years of what all went on in the 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday and then ascended into heaven. And thinking about, we're in that period now. Two weeks ago was Easter Sunday, and we are <clears throat> a little less than halfway um, into that 40-day period. What went on then? We see a fair amount in the New Testament Really, if we pay attention, both about what Jesus was doing and what the disciples were doing or not doing. The this was a terrible time, probably, and yet a wonderful time for the disciples. They went from believing Jesus was the one to the depths of despair over the crucifixion and then rejoicing over the resurrection and doing that gradually because it, Jesus had to repeatedly remind them, I, I'm alive. And then puzzlement. I think that there was a lot of, well, what do we do now? 
what, what, what are we supposed to do? And reading in this, in the Gospels, about this 40-day period, a lot of people think, a lot of people say, preachers make the point, the resurrection of Jesus so inspired the disciples and sent them into the world with the good news of the resurrection and the news of Jesus is alive launched them. No, it didn't. Not really. Because for 40 days, well into the 40 days, it says in one place that they were, John reports this, that they were hanging out at Peter's house. And there were quite a few, must have been four or five other disciples. And Peter said, in light of the resurrection, I'm going to go start preaching. He didn't say that. I think he kind of yawned. He says, well, I'm going to go fishing. That's what he said. I'm going to go fishing. And the other four or five that were there in the house with him said, yeah, we'll go with you. They went out, and we know the story. They went out and says they fished all night, and they got nothing. In the morning, as the sun begins to come up, they see a lone figure on the beach. And they don't recognize him. And they're about a football field's length from the beach. Across the water, the sound carries. And that person on the beach calls out to them and says, do you have any fish? And they shout back, no. We fished all night. We have nothing. And he said, Cast your net on the other side of the boat. Some of the other Gospels mention that they, they weren't rejecting what he said. They still didn't know who this was. But they were, it was kind of, hey, we've, we've fished all night. It's not like we don't know how to fish. And we've been on both sides of the boat and we got nothing. But they went ahead and cast a net on the right side of the boat. And they engulfed, and it's so precise, John's report, they, en they ended up entrapping such a mass of fish that the boat was beginning to sink as they tried to get all the fish on board. And John says there were 153 fish in it. That's how precise. And then they said, it's the Lord. That's who's on the beach. So they begin to row in. And Jesus, they see, already had a bed of coals, fish and bread baking on it. And he said, bring some of the fish you caught and let's eat breakfast together. And it says no one wondered who he was. They knew it was the Lord. Now, the disciples then were kind of rudderless and leaderless and not sure what to do during that 40 days. That's an example of some of the wondering, I think, and 
bit of confusion that they were involved in. But Jesus was doing mighty work in just that 40 days. And in Acts chapter 1, Luke wrote Acts, and of course he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he refers to the first Gospel, or his first writing, here in verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Theophilus was an unknown, assumed authority of some kind, a benefactor, to whom the first writing of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is addressed. And so the former treatise, the former writing, is the Gospel of Luke. And he gives the purpose. I'm, I wrote of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched... He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him Go into heaven. Then it goes on. They returned to Jerusalem and to the temple. And they went into the upper room where they stayed ten more days in obedience to what Jesus told them. It says, in prayer and supplication. Supplication's an old word um, for specific kinds of praying. So we could say this. Maybe a simple way to say the word prayer here in general is a shotgun approach to praying. It's covering everything. Supplication is laser or rifle. It's homing in on one specific primary request and praying until we know the Lord has heard us. That's the kind of then praying they pass this 10 days together in the upper room. I don't think it meant they stayed there and never went out, but nevertheless, it's really gathered for each day. Now, I think the interesting truths that we find here about what Jesus was doing during this 40 days, 
begin here in the second verse of Acts 1. First, he commands the apostles. He gave commands. He ordered them. He commanded the apostles a number of things. And through the apostles, the commands he gave come to us. We trust in the Christian faith that God commissioned the apostles, and it says the ones whom he chose, to speak to us. They wrote it, and they, being dead, yet speak. These words of the apostles are binding on us. The things Jesus taught to them and told them to pass on to us come with the backing of the authority of Jesus himself. And this is why, not to get off the subject, but this is why in the New Testament, as they, through a century or more, as the church and its leaders sought to gather together the legitimate books of the New Testament, settled on this criteria. It was either written by one of the apostles or by a very close associate of one of the apostles. It's apostolic. Jesus' authority then attaches to what these men whom he chose say to us. Jesus prayed. Do you know Jesus prayed for us then in John 17? He prayed for the disciples, the apostles. He said, sanctify them and keep them from the world. Then he said, I pray not only for these, I pray for those who will believe on me because of your words. We're still doing that today. We believe in Jesus and what he taught through the words of the apostles. And the kinds of commands that he gave them, there are a number of them. We won't, can't go to all of them. But just before he ascended into heaven, he gave them a command. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I told you. That's a command. When they had that fishing experience that I just mentioned, Jesus gave some commands there. Specifically, he gave commands to the apostles that come to especially pastors, preachers, those who follow in that train. Three times he said to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That's a job description for every pastor. It's also, so feed my sheep is a command. It's also a reminder 
They're not our sheep. You are not my sheep. Do you realize that? I am assigned to this flock by the chief shepherd, so I am an under-shepherd. All pastors are under-shepherds. We work for the chief and under the supervision of the chief shepherd. But the awful, awful truth, and I'm, I don't mean in a bad way, but what ought to keep us on edge. These aren't my sheep. If I offend one of God's sheep, hopefully, hopefully, not intentionally, but it's an awful thing to lead God's sheep astray, to fail them, to not shepherd them, to not feed them. God just railed on the Old Testament preachers through the major prophets. He said, you feed yourselves and not the sheep. Jesus spoke freely that there were shepherds who he said didn't care about the sheep. They were hirelings. They're in it for the money. Now, in general, to go into the pastorate, and I'm hear me good, I'm com not complaining, I've had a charmed life, frankly. But to go into the ministry where the average church in the United States averages right just barely over 100 in order to make money is among the stupidest things anybody could do. Yet, they do it and live off of the people, feed themselves, work at their own pleasure. Oh, I've got too many stories that come out of mind. I better keep going. On what basis does Jesus give these commands to the apostles and through them to us? On, on the mount where he ascended into heaven, Matthew 28, he said this. He introduced two verses. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, on that basis, go into all the world, preach the gospel. The authority of Jesus attaches to these commands. Now, the second thing that Jesus does, he convinces. For 40 days, verse 3, first half, mentions that he showed himself that he was alive through many, it says, infallible proofs. God is the most transparent being in the universe. He hides nothing about his motives and intentions toward us. He opens him himself up for inspection. He always has. He's got nothing to hide. And he says, test me, try me, and see if I won't 
keep my word. He convinces then that he's alive through many infallible proofs. What are those proofs? Well, that he appeared, of course, and even when the disciples, the very first night, Easter night, when they were locked up in a secret place, Jesus appeared, and he showed them his hands and his feet, and it said they still wondered and doubted. So what did he do? He said, do you have something to eat here? Was he hungry? No. He, he, he said, give me something to eat. And then he said he ate it in front of them and said, see, a sp I'm not a spirit or a ghost. A spirit, a ghost, doesn't have flesh and blood and doesn't eat. Those are the links Jesus goes to to convince us. Believe. Thomas missed that meeting. And when the next time they were together and Thomas was there, remember he focused on Thomas. And he said, Thomas, reach your finger and put it in the nail print in my hand. And then he said, do not become faithless, but be believing. Everything Jesus does is to encourage and assure he repeats himself. He does all he can do to prove I'm alive, I'm God, and I'm for you. I am with you. Other proofs that were, in addition to Jesus showing himself to the disciples, you have the word of the guards, the Roman guards that were at the tomb site. And what they witnessed. And of course, the, this is the first time, or maybe it's the, it's the last time. No, no one's ever done this since. The Pharisee, Pharisees, it says, gave great money to the guards and said, don't tell anybody what you saw. And so they went out and report, made a false report and said... His disciples came while we were sleeping and stole the body. Now, they had to get huge money because if you went to sleep as a guard, you were dead. I mean, it was automatic. It's a death penalty. So for them to have to sell that story, it better, may, it better be worth it. The Pharisees made it worth it. Now, that's the last time. There's ever been politics where money has bought people off and they haven't said anything and they've lied. Third, he communicates, communi communicated truth, doctrine, teaching during those 40 days. Second half of verse 3, he spoke to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, what, what was he saying there? Primarily, he was saying this. 
The kingdom of God, the best way we can describe the kingdom of God, it is the rule of King Jesus. It's the rule of God, our King, in our hearts. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus said that in reality, the kingdom of God is invisible. He said, the kingdom of God's among you even now. The kingdom of God is in my heart. Now, I can see its outward expression in a life. I certainly can see that. But the real true meaning of being a part of the kingdom of God, of being a subject to that sovereign, that monarch, is that the king lives in my heart. And the kingdom of God is in here. And I know it. I was thinking this morning, a really old song that I remember singing as a kid. He lives. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's way. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. I talked to him this morning. He's real. He's alive. To have Jesus in my heart and to be born again ushers me into the kingdom of God as he crosses God himself A.W. Tozer has the title of a great book, and it's scripturally correct, the title. Man, the dwelling place of God. That's what God created us for. We lost that in the fall, Adam and Eve. So all of us come into this world lacking that. Being born again, becoming a Christian, entering into the kingdom of God is it, it's an indescribable privilege, but it's simple. God himself crosses the threshold of my personhood and enters my heart at my invitation and my faith of who he is and that he has a right to dwell here he has a right to dwell here because he made this and he owns me. A, if you, have you read lately? It's not new necessarily, but it's increasing. The insanity of squatters taking over somebody else's property and supposedly there, there are so many laws protecting the squatters that people are spending tens of thousands of dollars and spending months and months and even years to get some squatter out of their own property. And we read that, and I think every one of us think, what in the world's a matter here? They ought to be given 60 seconds to get out. And that's if they're slow. It's a travesty. What do we do as human beings? We're squatters when we run this, our own lives. We change the locks on God. 
And here's, but here's how God is. What does Jesus say more than once? I stand at the door and I knock. And if you'll open unto me, I'll come into you and says, I will dwell with you and I will eat supper with you. Now, as I look at it as a human, I'd be up there with one of these battering deals, you know, where you, you just holler out Chicago PD. Been watching too much of that. And then, bang! I own this. Coming in. God doesn't do that. In spite of the high crime of taking over God's property and changing the locks on him. He stands on the porch and he knocks. And if I don't open, he'll turn away. Now we'll pay, obviously, out into eternity. But this is this is what he communicates to me and communicated to them about the kingdom of God. It's not of this world. It is an invisible kingdom. But the interesting thing is the citizens of that kingdom, we know each other. The kingdom is invisible, but we know one another. We fellowship with one another. We encourage one another. And we recognize each other for a family resemblance. Ever had people, I think many of us have, and sometimes I've had this happen to me, but it's probably more because of my role than some aura around me. When I first, first started preaching, I preached six months in a little country church in Indiana as I was finishing up college. And there was this woman at the church. I don't know what was wrong with her. But um, this was a little tiny church, probably held 50 people, a little old country church, white clapboard, the steps going up. And you, this little cubby hole, kind of a platform. And there was just a bare, probably 150 watt bulb over, over the plat or the pulpit. And often she would tell me, oh, yeah. That was just such a wonderful sermon. She said, it was just like a, there was a light around you. And finally I told her, it says, there's a 150-watt bulb that's about three feet above my head. It's not an aura. It's just a bare light bulb. <clears throat> I don't know how I got off onto that, but at any rate. <clears throat> at any rate. We recognize one another when we're in the kingdom of God. We fellowship with one another. We encourage one another. We join together. And we are members of the kingdom of God. I remember being with two other preachers. And we were in a hospital in Portland out in the hallway. And the father of one of the guys that was there, also a pastor, was dying. And he was in the hospital room. And we would bumped into each other. Everybody knew him. And so we were going up to see uh, Dean Vermillion was his name. And to pray with him and his wife. And we were standing out in the hallway. 
And this nurse came by and started walking by, and then she stopped. She turned around, she, and she said, are you guys Christians? And then she added, are you pastors? And we said, yeah. She said, I thought so. I'm a believer. I thought so. And then she went on down the hallway. Now, that doesn't always happen. But we're part of an invisible kingdom. The world thinks we're crazy, doesn't think it exists. But God knows we're part of a completely invisible world that is a bit of heaven to go to heaven in. Further, Jesus, in addition to communicating to us, teaching us, teaching the disciples, talk to them about the things of the kingdom of God. And then, here's an interesting thing. Jesus commanded them, seems contradictory. How many times did Jesus say, go, go into all the world, preach the gospel here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world, go, fan out, don't cling together here, take off. Then he turns right around and he says, don't go anywhere. You stay here. Before you go, you wait. Seems contradictory, but it's not. The wait is for what? To be qualified to go and then be going effectively. Don't go. Don't go until you're qualified. Don't go until power comes upon you when the Holy Spirit falls upon you and is poured out upon you. Then you'll be witnesses to me everywhere. That's, that's what he commands and communicates to us. And in this case also, in verse 7, we can see he also corrects. He'll correct us. He corrected the disciples. They missed it. They thought they were on the verge of the restoration of the physical, temporal, seeable kingdom of Israel. It would be reestablished. And I don't know necessarily, probably they were angling for positions because we know, we know that on, in the week before the crucifixion, Jesus rebuked them because they were bickering over who's the greatest? Who does that? When you think about it, I think we're way more sophisticated in our phoniness. You know what I mean? Who sits around and says, okay, I think I'm the greatest? And somebody else says, no, I'm pretty sure I'm the greatest. You're not the greatest. I'm the greatest. Who does that? The disciples did. And they thought they were doing it quietly enough that Jesus wouldn't know about it. They'd been with him three years. He was a week away from being crucified. Like he doesn't know? Well, let's whisper so he doesn't hear us. That's as dumb as Adam and Eve. Go hide in the brush. He can't see us there. And they said, they, they told, he said, what were we talking about as we were walking along the way? Nothing. Well, and Jesus says, okay, the Gentiles behave like you do. 
and their great ones lorded over them. But he said, not so with you. Let the one who wants to be great be the least. Be little. He saw through them. And so he corrected them. He corrected them here. You going to establish the kingdom? He said, no. And, then, and here's something that's interesting, too. He said, it isn't given for you to know. Do you know that there are some things, and how many, I don't know, but Jesus has said to us, even as believers, there are some things that's none of your business. Or you don't need to know. You just follow me. Back to the conversation on the beach, Jesus said to Peter, when you get old, they're going to tie you up, take you places you don't want to go. And so what did Peter do? What are you talking about, Lord? Or, Lord, I don't know what you mean, but give me the grace to do it, and I'll follow you no matter what, whatever. No. <laughs> he looks at John and he says, well, what about him? <laughs> what does that have anything to do with anything? Jesus said, what is that to thee? In other words, <laughs> what? Mind your own business. He said, if I want him to live till I return, that's my business and his business. You, but what did he say? You just follow me. There's our supreme command. Just follow God. I don't know what somebody else is doing. I don't know about this. I don't know about that. There are certain things that God has deliberately said are off limits. And stop trying to pry into it. I do believe, and then I've got to hurry up here. I do think this verse should be paid more attention to by all the people that are hypnotized with end time stuff. Now, there's some end time stuff in the Bible, but who could figure most of it out? Just follow Jesus. And you know what? I'm willing to bet that if we just follow Jesus, the end times will probably work out. Just mind God. That's all I got to worry about. So God corrects. Jesus corrected here. Then lastly, with here in Acts and then in Matthew, he commissions us. And he gives us our fundamental job description as Christians. Our fundamental job description is to be a witness for Jesus. That's it. Live as a Christian in, as Titus heard from Paul, in this present evil world. Live righteously and soberly in this godless world. I know there's horrible stuff going on and it seems to get worse all the time. That cannot move us away from our fundamental purpose, our total job description is live for Jesus. You will be witnesses for me so that it doesn't matter if at work, at school, at home, where I'm at, live for Jesus. That's, that's, my, that's my task. Live for Jesus. This was a packed 40 days when we really isolate these 40 days and what all Jesus did during that short amount of time, reaffirmed all that he taught. But all of that applies to us. 
And in that brief 40 days, he summed up everything he taught and did in three and a half years and passes it to us. The question then is, are we doing it? Are we faithful to our purpose? Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> and let that question just linger in your heart under one condition, that you don't let the devil condemn you because he's happy to. Who have you led to the Lord in the last 15 minutes? Don't listen to that. Have I, is my heart clear that I am Trust in Jesus and walk with him to the best of my ability. Lord, we ask of you right now to once again convince us and commission us and give to us the assurance we need to confidently walk out the life you call us to. Lord, I pray for our hearts that what our pastor just said would be true, that we would not find ourselves in these moments right here being torn down in our hearts, but rather do what I believe is your will, and that's, that's find confidence in you and confidence to go live it out, Lord. So I pray that we would have a deep sense of you being on our side to do what you're calling us to do, Lord, and I pray that you give us grace today. Give us grace. Give us power to be able to do what it is you call us to. We won't forget, Lord, that in Acts, just a few short verses after what we read today, what all happened at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming to us, Lord. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit over our lives, too. The Holy Spirit is still moving and active and living among us and within us. And so, Lord, we ask this morning you give us a sense that we have that power in us so that we can go and do what you call us to do. Lord, we're grateful grateful for your word, grateful for the fact that you were with your apostles, your disciples for those 40 days so that we could have confidence in you as well, Lord, still today. We pray all this, asking for your blessing and your grace and your Holy Spirit's presence with us the rest of this day and week, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.